morning. We're uh, back in our Revelation series and uh, in the second letter this morning. And, and last week, I started, um, or in my sermon, I told a story of a hike um, as I was illustrating the church in Ephesus of how they had lost their first love. And I told the story of a hike on Boone Fork Trail, how I came upon this tree and it was laying in the river. And what struck me about this tree is that the tree still had life and that you could see it from its leaves. And yet, as I examined the, the trunk of the tree, I determined that the tree was dead. Well, later uh, at the, the lunch, the picnic after church, I was talking with Gary Hodge, who knows more about trees than I do. And uh, we had a really interesting conversation about that. And uh, he said, you know, Corey, you may not be wrong about the tree. It could have been dead, but it also could have been alive still, possibly. It may not have been dead. And what could have happened to the tree, potentially, that I wasn't there, I don't know, but you know, Gary knows more about trees than me. And we should really have a class on this in seminary about uh, the theology of how to, how to do tree analogies. There's a lot of trees in the Bible. But, but anyway, he said that it might not be dead, and what needed to happen to that tree is for someone to come along and to replant the tree. The tree could have been potentially saved if it had been replanted. And I love that twist on the analogy. He wasn't saying I was wrong. I appreciate that. And the analogy still stands from last week, but there's a twist to it. So perhaps, let's say the tree had just fallen over. It had become uprooted. Its roots had been exposed, and someone could come along and replant it by the banks of the stream. I think this morning, that's a good analogy for us to consider as we, as we look into the church at Smyrna and their faith in the face of persecution and suffering and the commendation that Jesus gives this church, I believe it will be challenging for you. Um, I know for me, as I was preparing the sermon this week, there were many opportunities for me to repent in my own life of how I uh, don't run the race uh, quite as faithfully maybe as some did in that church in Smyrna. The opportunity there for us to repent, repenting is like replanting your roots in the grace of the gospel. It's like the Holy Spirit coming along and replanting your tree deeply in his grace. That's what repentance does for us. So that I hope this morning we have an opportunity to leave challenged by the words of Jesus, but also repenting and replanting ourselves into his grace this morning. So Smyrna was a church that was about to undergo intense persecution, according to Jesus. And so we're going to look together today, first of all, at what must be believed to be faithful in suffering, what must be believed, our theology. Second, we're going to look at what must be lived to be faithful in suffering, how we have to live it out in real life. And then finally, we're going to look at the reward for those who are faithful in suffering. What do we have waiting on us if we believe and live it out to the end? So first of all, what must be believed to be faithful in suffering? And right there at the beginning, I'm used to longer readings of, of Scripture from that. You know, Kisa started and I was kind of getting ready and then it's three verses later, it's over. But verse 8, it says, To the angel of the church at Smyrna write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. Right there, Jesus is teaching him, us about himself and the theology that we need to have, what we need to believe to be true about his character, what's true about Jesus and who he is, and what we need to be, 
believing to be true about what Jesus has done for us. So who Jesus is and his character and what Jesus did on our behalf. Very briefly and succinctly, Jesus describes for us the theology of suffering that we need to have. You'll notice in each of these letters in the book of Revelation, the introductions, the salutations that Jesus gives about himself are different. And it's interesting that Jesus is talking about himself. He's saying, do you want to know the theology that you need to believe? It's found in me. And he nuances that theology for each church so that if they'll look to him and understand how he, who he is and what he's done, they'll be encouraged. First of all, Jesus says, what you need to believe in suffering about me is this, I am the first and I am the last. I'm the first and the last. He says, in the midst of suffering, you need to remember that I am the eternal God. You need to remember that I, before I, I came to earth, and yes, I, be, I became uh, incarnate of the Virgin Mary and suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and was buried. Before all that happened, I was. I, I existed from the beginning of time. He is eternal. He was the second person of the Trinity. He says, I was here before, all, long before all of this even started, before time began. I was there when time was created. I am, I have existed, he says, from the beginning. You need to remember that. You need to remember that. He says, also you need to remember that I am the last. I am the last. Not only have I been here forever, before time existed, I will be here in the end. I will be here in the end. Whatever you're suffering right now, and whatever you're going through right now, I will be present when it's all over. I will be here to make a new heaven and a new earth. When this earth passes away, I will be here. Jesus says, I am the eternal God, and you need to understand, if you have eternal life in me, then you, can, you are part of me. You join me in my eternality in a way that transcends what you're experiencing right now. And why is that so important? Because when you're experiencing deep and acute suffering, you're tempted to believe that the suffering that you've experienced, because you've never experienced it personally, and because it's so painful and so difficult, that that suffering puts a referendum on the truths that you've always believed about Jesus. You're tempted to believe that the suffering is more real than Jesus is real. You're tempted to rethink whether or not Jesus is really worthy, whether he's really capable whether he's really able to handle what's going through, what you're going through at that point in time. You ask yourself questions like, does God see? Does God know? Does my suffering perhaps mean that God doesn't even exist? Does my pain mean that God isn't loving or good? Does the suffering I'm experiencing mean God is not going to win in the end? Would it be easier for me, because of all this that I'm experiencing, just to give up on my faith in God, give it all up and try to just live for myself and make the most out of my life because of what I'm going through right now. And Jesus says in those moments, you need to remember that I am the first and I am the last, that I was here before this and I will be here after this. And you need to hang on to your faith. You need to remember that if you stay with me, if you hang with me, then you will be there with me through this, and you'll be there with me in the end. Jesus says you need to have a different theological perspective about me to be able to last 
in the storms of suffering. But Jesus doesn't just talk about who he is. He also then transitions to talk about what he's done. He said, I'm not just a God who's existed outside of time. As the eternal God, yes, I entered into time. I became enfleshed. I was born, I suffered all of the cruel miseries of this life. I walked the paths that you walk. No other God can say that. No other God can say, do you know how to face persecution? Follow me. No other God can say that. No other God has entered into humanity, become a human being. No other God can say, what you need to believe about me, first of all, is that I died. I died for you. What you fear the most in suffering is death. And Jesus says, I've already done that. I've already been there. I've already suffered on the cross for you. I've already died. And as we sang about this morning, that blood has been applied. And if you have me, then you have life in me. What you fear the most, I've already gone there. And you can follow me. You can receive the gift of life even in the midst of death. But then Jesus goes on, he says, I didn't just die. I haven't just faced the worst. I've also done the best. I've been raised to life. I, in the face of death, yes, really died, but then really broke the power of death so that now I'm alive so that you can know if you hang on to me and you hang on to your faith, you're not just going to participate with me in my death, you're also going to participate with me in my resurrection, and you will inherit a world that will be made new. Jesus has opened up a whole new world for us, a world of eternal life through his death and resurrection. So many of you are suffering now, you've suffered recently, or you're deeply resonating with as you suffer yourself the suffering of other people maybe locally here maybe globally somewhere else and you I need to ask you are you holding on to your theology of Jesus as you suffer are you holding on to what is true about Jesus Christ as you suffer that he is the first and he is the last are you holding on to the fact that he's died and been raised from the dead that he transcends all of this through his lordship, but he has made his lordship activated and actualized in real living history through his death and resurrection on the cross so that Jesus can truly say, I am redeeming all things. Are you holding on to your faith in the midst of the suffering, or are you allowing the suffering to place you in a position like that tree that is lying down in the river where its roots are exposed? Has the suffering rocked your world so that you're, you're no longer able to really believe the gospel and preach the gospel to yourself? Well, Jesus says you need to be aware of your condition and you need to see where you are. You need to receive the gift of God's grace and allow the Lord to replant you into the streams of God's grace, which are there for you through his death. And resurrection. We need to drink deeply in those words of Jesus. I am the first. I am the last. I died and I was raised. It is succinct, amazing theology when you are suffering. And Jesus says you need to believe that, but it's not enough just to believe it. You need to live it out in real life 
practically. So the second point this morning is what must be lived to be faithful in suffering. We get this in verses 9 and most of verse 10 where Jesus says, I know your, first of all, he says, I know your tribulation. I know your tribulation. Now, tribulation is a word uh, that has been used in describing revelation and teaching on revelation that can be confusing. So let me explain what the word tribulation means to you. Uh, Tribulation means suffering. Suffering for a period of time. Okay, tribulation, when it's often talked about in Revelation, we begin to think about um, you know, left behind series or this idea that we're in the very last days and the tribulation designates some period of time at the very, very end of time right before Jesus comes back. Um, but as I teach you about Revelation, I'm going to have to explain a few things to you, some bad teaching that's been given to you along the way. I don't think that's what tribulation means here. Tribulation means suffering. It means suffering. And the period of suffering that we are in is the period of suffering that has existed from when Jesus was ascended to heaven to when Jesus will return. So the period of the tribulation is, the end times is the period from when Jesus ascended into heaven into the period when he returns. That is the period of the church extending the gospel on earth, the rule and reign of Christ through the suffering of the church. The tribulation and the suffering of the church is something that we should not be surprised by. And Jesus says, I see your tribulation. So if you were to ask me, Corey, are we in the period of the tribulation? My answer would be absolutely yes, we're in the period of the tribulation. But when I say that, I don't mean that we are in like the last you know, seven years or some period of time right before Jesus returns. I mean we're in a period of suffering because we follow the suffering servant in this world to extend the gospel. We're in the tribulation. And Jesus says, importantly, I see your tribulation. I see your suffering. I see you. I see what you're going through for my name's sake. I take note of it. I take note of what you're going through, and I take note of what you're about to go through, Jesus says, as we suffer for his name. Colossians 1.24 says, We fill up in our flesh what is left with regard to Christ's afflictions. What that means is that Jesus doesn't need to suffer anymore for our salvation. But as we live out the Christian life and we suffer for his name, we are filling up what is still left with regard to what Christ expects to happen as a result of the gospel being proclaimed in the world through the church. And Jesus says we shouldn't be surprised by suffering, and he takes note of our suffering as we endure it until his return. He says, First of all, I see your tribulation. And then he says, I see your poverty. I see your poverty, though you are rich. I see your poverty, though you are rich. Now, for these Christians at Smyrna in this day, they were going to be required to literally give up everything. They hadn't already been required. For the sake of being faithful to Christ, they're going to have to give up like Martin Luther said in his A Mighty Fortress as our God, goods and kindred, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they will kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. 
that wasn't going to be theoretical for these Christians at Smyrna. They really were going to have to give it all up. They were going to be completely impoverished from a worldly perspective for the sake of the gospel. And even though the church at Smyrna and the church today in China and many places, the church in Nigeria, the church in Iran, the church in, in North Korea, these are also not theoretical verses for them. They, they really are going to have to, if they haven't already, become totally impoverished to gain the kingdom, to live in light of Christ and his kingship. Even though for, for us, it can feel th- theoretical today, what I want to tell you is that it's not. This is not just a verse to be applied if you're in certain countries in the world. Every Christian, everyone here today, every one of us should read this and say, what does it look like for me to, as the old Baptist hymn says, surrender all? I surrender all. That's not just on the night of your you know, coming to know Jesus and receiving him into your life. That's a, that's a call. That's something that we're called to do as Christians. We're called to embrace poverty. Spiritual poverty, yes, but, but real poverty. To give it all up for the sake of Christ so that we can follow him faithfully in the world. And Jesus says, when you give up everything to me, I want you to know you are so rich. You're so rich. You still, you have everything. Even though you've given up everything for me, you actually gained so much more. You've gained what can last. You've gained me, he says. I love the verse Luke 12, 32, where Jesus says, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. And can't you see Jesus saying this over the church at Smyrna as they're being persecuted? Fear not, little flock, for the Father has chosen to give you the kingdom. Though it feels like you are giving up everything and you are in this life, you are gaining the kingdom, you're gaining the world. And the Jesus goes on, he says, I see your tribulation, I see your poverty, and then he says, I see your slander. I see your slander. Now, I got to admit, in this list, this is the one that struck me the most. Um, I don't often think about Jesus seeing my slander. I have categories for Jesus seeing suffering, Jesus seeing poverty, but Jesus seeing slander is one that I don't often think about What is slander? Slander is words spoken against a person that are either untrue, half-true, or twisted around and are spoken to defame them, put a black mark by them in people's minds to tear them down. It's worse than gossip because slander actually has evil intent behind it. The goal is to destroy or to defame a person. So who is the source of the slander in this situation in Smyrna? What does this verse mean? They say they are Jews, but they are not, but are really of the synagogue of Satan. Well, there must have been Jewish leaders in the community, as we see throughout Acts and and Paul's missionary journeys and adventures and and sharing the gospel. There There were Jews who were somehow in power and they were conspiring with Gentile leaders in those areas to speak untruths, half-truths, twisted truths about the church so that they would be defamed and ultimately destroyed. 
This is slander. It was, a, it was an actual pogrom against the church initiated by these Jews. And Jesus says these slanderers are showing that they are not, he says, true Jews, which is interesting. So Jesus, who is a Jew, who is the hope of the Jewish nation, who's the Messiah of all people, the anointed one to save us, is saying on behalf of his people and the people that, they rep- that he represents in this case, he's saying, if you're not a true Jew, if you don't receive me, if you, if you go against the church, then you're not a true Jew, he says here. I find that really interesting in Jesus' estimation. He says he's the hope of all people, including the Jewish people, and hating on him or his church shows who you really are. And Jesus goes on to say, do not fear what you're about to suffer. He's saying it's going to get really hard. Why? The devil is about to throw some of you in prison that you may be tested, and for 10 days you will have tribulation. So here we get to one of the first numbers mentioned in Revelation. Uh, We've seen uh, the the number seven, which actually does represent seven churches. So there's one literal example of how to translate a number in Revelation. But there's also many more examples that will come of numbers that are used which are not meant to be interpreted literally. So Jesus is not literally saying that you will be put into prison for 10 days. 10, if you look biblically at the number 10, what does it mean? It's a number that represents fullness, a a long uh, series that in the end is complete. So it's very likely that he's not actually saying, mark your calendars and 10 days is going to be over. He's saying, importantly, I know what's about to happen to you. And it's going to last longer than you want it to and longer than you think it should. But eventually that number will be complete. And I want you to know that even though Satan is doing this, I stand sovereign over everything that is happening to you. Do not think that you are out of my control. I see you and I am with you in this. So they're going to be thrown into prison and they're going to suffer. So in Smyrna, the church could easily get out of all this persecution. How could they easily get out of the persecution? Well, they could pay homage to the emperor. If they just immediately paid homage to the emperor, and then they kind of gave up on some of the things that they wanted, struck a bargain with some of the local officials, um, there, there were ways that they could half-heartedly follow Jesus and maintain their wealth, their health, and their prosperity. They could manage all of that if they would just give up on a few things that they believe to be true about Jesus. They could make life on earth much more livable if they didn't follow Jesus wholeheartedly. And so in China right now, if a church will bow to the Xi regime, bow allowing the Communist Party to track their members, to control their preaching, to control who becomes their pastor, to control what gets printed in their theology books, etc., then those churches can live nice, easy lives, coexisting right alongside the Xi regime. If they'll just give up on their theology, who pastors them, sharing the gospel with kids under 18, there are a few things that they can do to keep all of their money, 
to, to maintain all of the, the lifestyle, their middle-class lifestyle that they so badly want. They can actually hold on to that, but they have to give up on following Jesus wholeheartedly. What about in America? How do we face this threat of bowing to political pressure? Well, we actually also face the question in America of what will we do, how will we bow, will we follow the emperor? It's not an emperor for us because we don't live in that type of a government, but we face political pressure every day. We face the question, will we follow Jesus? Since we live in a democracy, our emperor is not one man, so the, the, it's a little bit harder for us to see. We don't pay homage to one person, but we're encouraged to put our hope all around us in a political party or in a politician. And election season is uh, kind of woefully going to begin again. And so it's my um, job to pastor you through this every like two and a half years. Um, So in America, we have a lot of political pressure that we face to align ourselves with a political party. If you want to rile up Americans, the fastest way to see what we're passionate about is not to talk about religion, but to talk about politics. If you bring up religion at the dinner table, you'll get a lot of, honestly, usually a lot of half-hearted, not very well thought through comments. But if you bring up politics at the dinner table, your Thanksgiving dinner, you will have opinions cocked and loaded and ready to be released. So what if Christ doesn't align with our political party's views? Because in our society, politics, we're politics first and Jesus second, we often make Jesus subsidiary to our politics. And when there are areas of Christ's character that don't align with our political party, what we do, usually, often, is we bury our heads in the sand because it's just too confusing And we just continue down the Republican or Democrat path anyway. Or worse than that, probably, we blend up Jesus into our politics, so we end up with an American Republican Jesus or an American Democrat Jesus, and you get some really, really weird applications that end up happening. I mean, weird examples of how that can manifest itself. Of course, Jesus is neither a Republican or a Democrat. He's a king. You know, to claim that you're a king is actually a very political statement. It's a very political statement. Sometimes people will be like, you know, Jesus isn't political. Actually, that's totally untrue. Jesus is political. He's incredibly political because he says, one of the main titles he used for himself is, I'm a king. I'm a king. In China, what they take this to mean is that Jesus is king, not she. In Iran, what they take this to mean is Jesus is king, not the Ayatollah. In North Korea, what they take this to mean is Jesus is king, not the the current Kim in office right now. Or you you take it out, Nigeria, 89% of the deaths right now for Christ happening in the world are happening in Nigeria. Did you know that? 89%, why? Because they see Jesus as king, and he confronts their current situation of Islamist rule. So what about for us? We're tempted because we're in a democracy, because it's less clear. We're tempted to blend up Jesus into our politics when we need to say Jesus is king. 
What does it look like to follow Jesus? What does it look like for Jesus to critique my politics? What does it look like for Jesus to critique the political party that I vote for? What does it look like for for Jesus to be king and then for me to live out my life in America? Yes, absolutely voting one way or the other, but not for one second believing that Jesus sees the world through red or blue lenses. I can assure you that he doesn't. I can assure you that the hue that Jesus looks at with the world is through the lens of his kingship, his rule, and his reign. And so we need to, in the midst of that, recognize that if we opt for Jesus first and politics second in America, like for real, like not just as like lip service to that, but we actually live Jesus first, politics second, then people will be confused. People will be confused by that. Some of you are very involved in, the, in politics in America. I think that's awesome. I'm more and more involved in certain things that are going on in Washington and even with some things at a state level these days. That's great, but we always have to remember as we're engaging in those conversations, who is king? Who tells me what's true, and how do I live that out in the world? If you live for Christ in America, you can expect these days in various ways to be slandered. And Jesus says, I see your slander. I see the way that you are incurring suffering on my behalf, and some of that suffering is slander. Some of that suffering is people saying things about you that are untrue, half-true, and they're trying to tear you down. And Jesus says, I see you. So how can we stay stable in a time of suffering, especially in a time of slander? Well, we have to remember our gospel identity. The gospel of Jesus determines who I am, not this person or this group of people. In a time of slander, you really get to answer the question, whose opinion do I care about the most? Do I care about the opinions of all of these other people, or do I care about the opinion of Christ? It's an, slander is actually an excellent time for spiritual growth because it cuts through one of the main idols that we all have, and that is the idol of human approval. And we get to then rest ourselves in the gospel of Jesus. And Jesus says, I see all of these things. This is how you live it out. Tribulation, poverty, and slander. Finally, he goes on and says, the reward for those who are faithful in suffering. Jesus tells us this. If we're faithful to him to the end, we will receive, he says, the crown of life. That does not mean, I'll be, be clear, that does not mean that if you have a moment in life when you fail, that you lose your salvation. That only people who endure to the very end in this, in this way um, will we'll be saved. I believe that there's grace. There's tons of people in the history of the church that have had moments where they have, they've lost it and they've repented. And So I don't want you to go there, but I do believe what Jesus is saying here, the crown of life is the idea of like, for in a Roman world, this laurel wreath that is given to the victor, okay? This is the, this is the mark of a faithful disciple. You can be more or less faithful in discipleship. That's true, Okay? more or less faithful. And those who are faithful to Christ will receive this crown of life in the end. Polycarp, maybe someone you've heard of, maybe not. He's pretty famous in church history. He was a disciple of John, the apostle John who wrote Revelation. And Polycarp, um, he, was, uh, he, li- he was a disciple of John. He became the bishop 
of Smyrna. So that's why I'm talking about him. He became like the big leader of the church in Smyrna after John. And then Polycarp discipled a guy named Irenaeus. And Irenaeus wrote prolifically and wrote and tells us about Polycarp and the end of his life. At the end of his life, he was arrested for refusing to burn incense to the emperor. That would have been pretty easy, right? I mean, kind of say your prayer, burn the incense, and what's the big deal? He didn't do it. He was invited to renounce Christ and live. And he refused, and he said this famously, Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, and after a little while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. And then they set him on fire, and the fire didn't take. He miraculously was in the fire like the burning bush. It was burning, but he wasn't burning. And so they speared him to death. Polycarp was victorious, and he was confident that he would, make, he would not take part in what John says here. He calls it the second death. The second death. Now, what is the second death? Well, a pastor once told me this riddle of sorts, and it helped me understand, okay? And it goes like this. If you are born twice, you'll only die once. But if you're born only once, then you'll die twice. Okay, let me say it again. If you're born twice, you'll only die once. But if you're only born once, you'll die twice. What does that mean? Well, if you're born physically... You were born from your mother. Uh, And then, later, you are born spiritually. Then at the end of your life, you will only die once. You'll just die physically. But if in your life, you're only born physically from your mother, you only have physical life, and you don't have spiritual life, you don't experience that new birth in Christ, then in the end, you'll die twice. You'll die physically and you'll experience what John calls the second death, which is ultimate spiritual death. You will be confronted with the reality that you uh, are separated from God, like you are now, if you're not alive in Christ, you're spiritually dead. You will be confronted with the fact that you, are, you will be that way, you'll be in that state apart from Christ forever. And that's what that means. So the second death, so Polycarp, in the midst of this moment, he understands what he needs, he needs to be faithful to Christ. He wants to be faithful to Christ because he's been made alive in Christ and therefore will never experience that second death because he's been spiritually made alive. I want you to know that what happened in Smyrna, this is an unusual letter as we'll go through the seven. Most of the letters, this is, Jesus is absolutely com- commending this church. Yeah, what's coming is hard. But he's calling them faithful. There's no rebuke here. There's nothing they need to like really work on. What they need to do is they just need to stand firm to the end. And what we see in Smyrna with this combination of spiritual fruit that's happening and great suffering, what I find so encouraging for that is not only did the, these Christians at Smyrna and Polycarp and Irenaeus bear the bear the The results of that, they got to experience that victor's crown, being with Christ, being crowned a faithful disciple. 
now today, I actually have a friend who served as a missionary in Izmir, and is very, which is modern-day Smyrna, Izmir, Turkey. And I reached out to him this week because I know nothing about what's going on right now in Izmir. And I asked him, tell me about what's going on in Izmir right now today. In, in Turkey, which is a, a country which is um, otherwise not bearing a lot of spiritual fruit, the reality is that in Izmir, they're seeing a lot of amazing things happen for the gospel He says this, there's somewhat of a revival awakening going on in the ministry now, as many people have been coming to Christ as of late. Some of the churches were going through a season where it seemed like every week someone was praying to come to faith. Currently, our only student-led movement is in Izmir, and it seems like the churches are growing. However, there have been major hard times too. Many were persecuted for their faith from family and friends. I know of several whose family disowned them, one who lost his job and another whose doctoral thesis was denied because of his faith. I just found that I didn't tell him what I was doing. You know, I didn't, you know, go look at Revelation 8 through 11 and tell me how I can be encouraging for people now based on that passage. But what is happening in Izmir is so strikingly parallel to what was happening 1,900 years ago. What I draw from this is is this. Sometimes I think about that me holding on to my faith will impact you and my children and my grandchildren, but I never think about what's going to happen because if I hold on to Christ, what will happen 1,900 years from now? That thought never crosses my mind. But perhaps it should because what we see here is the example of, of the Smyrna church, of Polycarp, of Irenaeus, 1,900 years later is still bearing fruit in Smyrna slash Izmir many years. Could it be possible that you holding on to your faith in Jesus, it could be making a difference not just for your your children, your grandchildren, but what about 1,900 years from now when I would wager pretty much everything I have that Republicans or Democrats will not be controlling this region of the world? I don't know what's going to be happening Highly doubt that's going to be the case. So if we live for something that's bigger, more transcendent, that lasts, the gospel of Jesus, who knows what, that, what fruit will come to us, yes, the crown of life, but also to future, future, future generations. You know, as I was thinking about how to close my sermon, I looked in a commentary by Tim Chester, and he asked this question. He said, Pastor, how are you preparing your people for the possibility of martyrdom? That was his application question. I was like, wow, okay. So uh, I think that's a very relevant question. I think in America we can nuance messages like this and be like, you know, even though we're not suffering like they were, here's still some things that we can do. I think it's a better question just to ask, how are you preparing yourself for the possibility of martyrdom? How are you preparing yourself for that? Is it likely that you will face martyrdom? I don't know. I think it's becoming more likely possible. But if you learn to die for Christ, then you'll be prepared to live for Christ, right? If you surrender to him, if you're crucified with Christ, as Paul says, and no longer live, but Christ lives in you and the life you live in the body, you live by faith in the Son of God, who loved you and gave himself for you, if we live that way, if we die that way, then we'll be ready to follow Christ in whatever comes our way. I have a friend in China 
uh, who several years ago was arrested for the first time, and he found himself in the back of a police car for the first time for his faith. And he began asking himself the question, because what was going on in his heart was all of the things that he wanted to hold on to somehow in case he went to jail. All the things. He wanted more time with his wife. He wanted more time with his family. He wanted to see his kids grow up. He wanted to to pastor his church. He wanted the church to grow to places where it hadn't grown yet. There were all these things that he wanted, and he felt like the the Lord was saying to him, you need to repent of, of all of that. That is your way to know, and that's my way to know. If you were in the back of a police car and you knew wherever you were, let's say you went, it's hard to imagine America, let's say you might have gone somewhere else and you were arrested and and you just had to give up on a few things in order to, to, to live another day, what things would you be most tempted to want to hang on to instead of living for Christ? Well, there's your idols, right? Those are the things. A lot of times idols are really good things. There's nothing wrong with loving your spouse, right? <laughs> Come on, loving your kids. It's Mother's Day. Um, love, you know, having money and, and having plans with your money, all good. Nothing wrong with that. But if it's more important to you than Jesus, then we can let it go. We have to let it go. So the question for us as we look at the example of the people in Smyrna is this. What are you needing to give up? What are you needing to give up in order to hold on to this theology where, where Jesus says, I am the first and the last, I've died, I was raised. What do you need to give up to stand up under the tribulation, the poverty, the slander that can come our way? What do you need to give up in order to follow Christ? As we think about that tree that's laying there in the river with the roots exposed, maybe not dead yet, <laughs> maybe still alive, what do you need to do to plant your roots back deeply into grace not in grace in Jesus, not the hope of all of these other American things that we want so badly to be true, but just the hope of Jesus, the hope of Jesus Christ. That's what we need. That's the grace that we need to resurrect, to raise up the tree, to give us life, to be able to live faithfully to the end. Let's pray. Or sometimes it does seem distant for us to think about um, what it would be like to face martyrdom or to face suffering like this. And, and maybe it's for some of us, it's, it's not that hard to imagine. Um, maybe it's for ourselves and maybe it's for those that we identify with around the world who are suffering right now for your name. So, Lord, I just want to right now pray a prayer for all those who, uh, this is their This is their game plan. These verses are their game plan for living out today um, in the world where where they are really right now having to make decisions in the back of police cars or in prison cells. Where they're having to make decisions about whether they're going to hang on to you or give up. I pray that they would hang on. I pray that they would be faithful. I pray that you would strengthen them, Father. And I pray for us, too, that we won't see ourselves as so distant from that scenario, but we'll understand that the call to Christ is a call to die so that we would live. It's a call to poverty, but yet we're made rich, and we've been given the kingdom. And I pray that we would see the value, the transcending value of knowing you, Jesus, and how much you love us and care for us, that we would let goods and kindred go 
that we would put so much less hope in this world and so much more hope in the world to come and that you would strengthen us in the grace of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name.